Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello and welcome to another edition of Razor Wire. Now, this is going to be a bit of a newer segment. Me and some of the guests have decided that we're going to do a kind of a quarterly piece where what we do is we discuss things of interest going on in the information security world at the moment, be it economical, be it some kind of change in the way the technology is driven. But Oliver, since this is the inaugural quarterly view on InfoSec in general, do you want to tell people out there who you are, where you come from, what you do, that kind of thing? Sure. You know, I, I'm Oliver Rochford. I'm Chief Futurist at Tenzia, which is a fancy way of saying that I work on product strategy and marketing. You know, in my past, I've worked as a pen tester, as a SOC consultant. I wrote Hacking for Dummies, Dutch and German editions, first and second. And I, I worked as a Gartner analyst covering security operations topics like SIM, vulnerability assessment. And I was one of the analysts who came up with the SOAR market definition and, and category name. Ah, so you're in charge of some of the acronyms we're seeing coming out then. I actually dislike them. I think they're being used gratuitously. Most aren't new markets, they're just evolution. Um, but I, I don't know, there's just a trend towards new labels, I think, not just in InfoSec, it seems to be. I yeah. get people quote <laughs> I get people quoting them to me all the time and I'm just and I've been in this game for twenty five years and I'm like, What? Sorry, who? Where? What, what does this mean? You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean I I don't know why we can't just use descriptive names. We don't need yeah. acronyms, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe over time, if you've got something particularly long, but I think it's just the state of, of InfoSec and, you know, it's it's a rising light in the business world at the moment. We're seeing a lot of change in attitudes towards InfoSec in the, in, in the business space, both public and private. A couple of topics we're going to be discussing today, the nationalism of cybersecurity, the economic challenges we're seeing at the moment, and the waves of layoffs and, and what have you, which are kind of happening not just in this space but in the wider economy at large and kind of what that means. And maybe we'll go over things like the Silicon Valley Bank thing and how feasibly that's affected the investment in InfoSec because, let's face it, there was a, a lot of people in Silicon Valley getting a little bit worried there for a while. Uh, I think they're still worried now. VCs have put a lot of money in and said, put it into this bank. They're totally here to support you as you're up and coming and all the rest of it. So I think there was a lot of InfoSec startups that went, yay, we've got, we've, we've got our investment. And then all of a sudden, it all went completely the other way. And they were like, oh, it's all been swallowed up by the giant black hole, which is a bank that's just gone and failed. I mean, what's your opinion on where we are at the moment from an from a economical InfoSec perspective? Let's start with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's on everybody's mind. I think in reality, what's happening is that it's readjusting to a, a time to before we had really low interest rates. It's a painful adjustment. It's caught a lot of people unawares, but I also think it's a necessary adjustment. The valuations of companies over the past two, three years, the excesses in terms of spending. I, I, I've, I've known executives who, out of 10 projects, nine failed, and it didn't matter because they had so much money to throw around. I think it's cultivated bad habits, and it's let companies thrive that actually have no proper market viability just by pumping them up. So while it's painful... I, I think it's time. Um, it should have been done earlier than it would have been less painful, you know. I think we're coming into a bit of a funny era in general because, I mean, we've come out of, of the pandemic. 
The ransomware went crazy during that time period. Information security people hadn't had a chance to redesign their defense in depth, to reconsider what they were doing. We had technology being shoved in really quickly without any real thought for security, you know, because operationally companies still had to survive. And this led to, and before all of that was happening, security was kind of getting really important for organizations. Companies were waking up to how important it was. But I think all of those changes and the ransomware stuff and the uh, exfiltration of data and the, the tactics some of the bad guys were using. And then we suddenly walk into a special operation or however you want to term it. Some of us term it in a slightly different term, but I can't use that term on this channel because otherwise we get slapped. And all that's done is that's brought to fore how insecure some of our critical infrastructure is. And some of that is because of the, of what we've just discussed with the pandemic and the changes and, and the move more to, to cloud-based systems, as-a-service systems, people are getting rid of, of whole teams of people in order to, to, to push them out to as-a-service functions, you know, SEAM as a service, IDS as a service, XDR, ED, I'm talking acronyms again, I, I said I wasn't going to do that, but it's a bit of a kind of perfect storm, really. And I think that's what's driven a lot of investment in this space. When I joined Gartner back in 2014, they had this, this stream of research around what, what they called essentially convergent crises. So all of these things, AI, you know, geopolitics, everything coming to head at the same time. And that's the kind of thing we're experiencing in the moment. But we've also accelerated on many fronts because of technology. You know, I think, um, you mentioned a whole bunch of stuff, right? And if we go yeah, back, sorry, no, that's really awesome, right? But if, but if we go back and we disentangle a few of these things, right? If you look at what's happened over the past three or four years, we've had companies with valuations which have just been out of the realm of of realism. People just got caught up in in the hype. Part of this was because they believed we were accelerating all of these things that we've been waiting for: hybrid work, remote work, and stuff. Because of COVID, were accelerated. The misjudgment was thinking that it would just stay on that path and not veer back again after the pandemic stopped. It's linear projection, right? And of course, a lot of companies went all in on that. At the same time, if you think of the past two, three years, we've gone from one hype to the next. We've had the metaverse, we've had Web 3.0, we've had crypto. Not that these aren't important technologies, but not in proportion to how they've been presented. Now we have generative AI because everyone's seeking that that desperate straw that's going to stop them from drowning. Because in reality, what's happening is we're having a lot more fierce competition. We have a lot of economic headwinds because, well, we've just had a lot of cash created, right? It has to go somewhere. It will have an impact sooner or later. It went into asset prices. From a business point of view, from a cyber point of view, I actually think we've made headwind. We had the executive order in the US during that time. That's a recognition of a, almost a market failure. And if you look, there are academic papers which say cybersecurity is, is a typical market failure. We haven't solved our users' problems. And part of this were these valuations. Because instead of building technology, we were building valuations. They're not the same. So, so I think that's going to change. The other thing which has helped actually is crypto has taken a hit. That's beaten ransomware. Whether it's a money laundering aspect, whether it's regulations, I think they've all helped to limit the scope of ransomware, otherwise it would have blown up even further. And it shows you it's not just a technology problem. 
In reality, you have to have multiple solution aspects to make the cost of an attack so expensive that it disincentivizes most people. Part of that is technical. You're basically eliminating really not so good attackers. You're making it more only accessible to more professional or better funded threat actors. But the other part then, of course, is legislation, it's geopolitics, it's essentially the policy level, which is going to help. And the last bit is people's behavior. All of these together need to come together to improve security. And I think we've seen movement in many areas. The cloud push, I think, is an interesting one, or, or this move towards microservices, because we're also seeing a counter trend. Last year, Gartner, CIO survey, large percentage of CEO, CISOs and CIO says next 24 months, vendor rationalization consolidation is a big thing. If you look at insecurity, Palo Alto, look at, look at Fortinet, look at Microsoft, look at AWS, there's a consolidation going on, still microservices in a sense, but from one single vendor. I think that's quite interesting. And what you're seeing is this vaccination from one extreme to the other. We centralize, we decentralize, we centralize, we decentralize. And that's because each time the model is overhyped, like cloud, which has turned out to be just an expensive, expensive thing to do for a lot of companies because they don't actually have the kind of workloads that benefit from the cloud. And so I think we need to see an adjustment there where people just start being a bit more selective about what we do and how we do it. Um, because if you're spending your entire security budget on cloud and data cost, you're probably not spending it where it needs to be spent. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I think that I just think the market's in a bit of shock. I think it's frenzying around trying desperately to find some way to survive. We've got certain sectors that are just failing and dying, basically in zombie mode. We've got other sectors which are rising really high. Luckily, we're in one of them at the moment. Because by not doing any kind of security, you're just setting yourself up for another kind of failure. We've got CISOs that are now being appointed as advisors to the board, not necessarily all board members at the C-suite, but advisors at least to the board outside of the yoke of IT and the CIO, which I'm I'm very much in favor of. And obviously a lot of money, a lot of VC money coming into this space. We've got tons of Israeli companies starting up with InfoSec products and services, We've got a, a plethora of them coming out of the States, although, as I said, you know, that's, that's been stalled a little bit and a little bit of shock has, has happened there. And also we've got a number of them here in the UK as well. And then no doubt there's a load going on in other parts of the world where we're not getting on particularly well with. We're all kind of weaponizing up in our infosec, some of it is kind of defensive. A lot of it is defensive, but a lot of it is about intelligence. A lot of it is starting to go down the route. I'm starting to wonder. I mean, with the Vulcan papers that recently came out, that was a really interesting read. Are we going to start seeing that in the Western world? You know, are we going to start seeing some of these big companies creating, in essence, whichever type of team you want to term it, red team, purple team, whatever, but, but teams of people who are basically for rent, from the government, but not directly attached to the government for plausible deniability. Where are we going with this? We're, we're, we're sat there in the middle of it, of this whole plethora, this tornado of change. And I don't know where to start looking, I'll be honest. And I've been in this for 25 years. 
You know, it, it's a funny thing. So I, I started looking into cyber war back in 2011, 2012. So I've got articles on Security Week. I was doing like interviews and stuff. And it was premature back then because we were thinking about how this would look. And, you know, we would talk about like techno-nationalism. That, that was one of the topics for today. And it ties in nicely with this. It's just the fact that we've had this long phase where things were quite risk-free. We had a few cyber criminals, but generally investing in security didn't really get you much of a return. That's changed, right? Over the past few years, things have escalated. We're seeing really um, regional centers building up and essentially technology building up around that, you know, like China, like, like Russia, like Europe in a minor way and the US, and we'll come to Europe in, in a little bit. But really, this isn't necessarily new. We've seen this for a long time. The NSA leaks already from Snowden already given insight into the fact that you can call it a commercial relationship and government regulation, but at the end of the day, U.S. companies work with the U.S. government to further U.S. interests. End of. Just like every other country does the same thing because there's national security laws. So, And this is done secretly for good reason, right? So it's just that it takes on different forms. It's how it's regulated. For example, in the U.S., we have the Vulnerability Equity Commission, which decides whether a vulnerability gets used as a zero day or it's so severe it gets, it gets published. It didn't work well for a long time. It wasn't manned up under Trump, but it exists, right? So it's about the checks and balances. That's the difference. It's how do you regulate this? And in democracy, we elect people who manage people who representative for us do that. But at the end of the day, we still do it. And you see an uptick in the last years of essentially the sentiment. And what's interesting is that it's not just the big players, even the small players. Today, there was an article that France has just done a public consultation on how French people would like to see the metaverse develop as a counterpoint to big tech. And it's preposterous. They have no way to, to bring this out. It's just a bunch of people talking, right? It's like bold men arguing about a comb. But really, what's interesting is that they think it's a big enough topic that they have to do it. China, an article came out yesterday that China has just released essentially their proposed legislation for the biases that they expect AI to have. So it has to, for example, have the biases of being socialist conform. And so you're already noticing there's already, as we're going to have lots of different AIs basically embodying different biases or national ideologies or whatever. That's the reality of it. There's no bias-free AI. It's just whichever bias you pick. But you can already see there's a national component going on there. You've seen the Huawei bans over the years, which oddly enough, Cisco didn't benefit, or Nokia actually did pretty good business out of it, ironically, in the EU. It is going on, and it's going to increase, because the world right now, it's not exactly going, I don't know, unless somebody de-escalates, which is hard to see in the moment right now how, it's going to escalate. And at that point, what really, I think, a useful way to look at this is in terms of ecosystem. Right now, we've had an ecosystem where if you went for growth at all costs and you didn't care too much about security, didn't bother you too much. That's changing now, not just through external factors, but also through legislation, domestic expectations, and national security. That's going to change the way that, that companies behave, and it's going to change the supply chain, the way that we vendors, we contractors, we, we service providers, what, what we offer. That's what's going to happen now. And it's going to change from a mindset of just exuberance, and it doesn't matter, to one of basically doing a better job of it, you know? really focusing more on security, integrated security, not bolted on as an afterthought. 
I mean, just out of interest, uh, you know, kind of going, you know, sort of unpacking that a little bit. All the way through kind of my InfoSec career, I've quickly come to understand the danger of being too secure and how security can kind of disable an organization from doing what it needs to do to survive and tying things up. You've got to get a really kind of good level of your defense in depth and your security countermeasures. If companies are starting to really wake up to this and you've got new legislation coming out of EU, you've got new legislation coming out and directors coming out of the US and pretty much everybody's coming up with something. Is it going to make security far more expensive for organizations who are trying to build themselves up to be able to compete? Because if they don't secure themselves to the level required, obviously they're not going to get the support from government institutions to buy their services. But equally, they're feasibly going to get taken out by a group before they've even started. I mean, that's great if you're a security company because you're going to be getting a lot of work. But it's not good for the rest of our tech industry because, let's face it, the tech industry is really where I see a large percentage of, of growth in InfoSec really coming because there's a lot of new projects coming out. We talked about AI, good example. If you'd asked me five years ago how far AI was down the road, I would have said quite a way. You know, it's, it's developing, but it's going to be a little while yet. I'm not so sure anymore. Judging by what I'm seeing and how much money is being put in. I mean, the UK government has legislated, you know, grants for companies that are, or support for companies that are developing AI along with nuclear energy, because let's face it, one, we need power that's cheap and abundant and doesn't involve us burning something we've dragged out of the ground, which is completely useless these days anyway, as we've discovered. But also AI, the fourth industrial revolution, I know that's something that you want to specifically talk about another, you know, one of these quarterlies. Maybe we'll do it for the next time. But this is, we're going there to a breakneck speed. You know, machine learning is encompassing everything. Cripes, there's apps that you can, you know, you can download an app where you can create your own girlfriend. I'm not kidding. I know. And, and okay, they had, yeah. to, they had to disable some of the more spicy aspects of it because it was getting a little bit weird. But, but we're seeing it in art. We're seeing it in music compilations. People are using chat GPT for pretty much everything. I've seen that applications coming out that use it as a base. What, what, are, we, what are we looking at here? I'm a bit worried. You know, I've got Elon saying we need to pull back a tad. We need to slow this down a tad because this is getting a bit worrying how fast we're doing that. Develop- and you kind of mentioned it earlier on. We're developing faster than we're securing. We're not thinking about where we're going. But the thing with AI is, so here's the problem with Elon that led to all the entire approach is that you don't have global consensus. And and somebody else already came out and said that we put a moratorium on it. You're just letting somebody else get ahead. And that that's the problem with Europe. You mentioned what the UK government is doing. The UK government by itself will do very little. This is a moonshot project style thing. You need lots of data. You need to go together. And the, the Chinese have data, enough of it. They've been collecting it via TikTok and from their own people. So they don't have that data problem, which every small European country has. And indeed, if you look at the EU, we've put a moratorium on um, four years for facial recognition while they're vetting it. In that time, facial recognition elsewhere on the planet is just going to accelerate. And in reality, it's this attempt to try to block it and freeze it, but you can't. 
The big danger there is that AI dominance means dominance, period. If you have the best AI, you have the best ballistic missiles, you have the best medication, you have the best electronics, you have the best everything. And it's not, here's the, the crazy thing about this, what you mentioned about what everyone is using. This is evolution. ChatGPT is not a revolution. If you've been following these type of things using Grammarly, using Autosuggest, this has been an iterative step. What ChatGPT is, is for first implementation that's production ready. You can build something useful out of it. That's why it seems revolutionary for people who've just woken up to it. But here's my takeaway from this and the scary thing, because I have an article series coming out on Security Week on, on AI futures, where we're looking at different paths we can take, right? But the scary thing about this is that to hit essentially a singularity beyond which we cannot predict what's going to happen because it fundamentally changes how humans, it will fundamentally change the trajectory of human history, right? And that definition is from Ray Kurzweil, who came up with the technological singularity definition. We're going to hit that way before we have full-blown AI. We're already hitting it now. I have discussions with, with other people in the space. We can't tell you what security operation is going to look like in five years because right now there are so many things which can take it into a different direction. But more importantly, we're only at the beginning. We're still trying to build faster car, faster horses, like Ford said with ChatGPT. We haven't really worked out what we can do beyond the obvious use cases yet. So we need to get building. We need to get building and we need to be faster than everybody else. Well, this is, this is a kind of leads back to that nationalistic view, really. I mean, do you see us splitting into different technological constructs within like NATO, for instance, or within BRICS, you know, obviously, you know, nobody in BRICS is going to utilize the security technology from from a NATO country because of the implications of, of obviously things being looked at that shouldn't be looked at equally. I mean, we've obviously it's not security technology, but a lot of the Western countries now said no TikTok, no TikTok at all in, in government and, and whatever. And, and whether you agree with that or not i personally do videos shorts of people running around with cats or go eating their lunch or whatever you know i don't care i don't, don't really get it but, but uh, it, it's no no it's worse than that it's an emotional behavior trial and error loop where you can try to trigger an emotion and measure the response yeah well the, and and weirdly enough i was having a converse, conversation about cyber warfare with with somebody the other day about how all of this stuff could feasibly, you know, has feasibly been being done for a long time now to kind of direct disagreement in the West between certain groups and types of individuals and so on and so forth. And we know that people claiming that it's been people fitting around with, with you know, who's going to become the president, disinformation, and there's a whole plethora of stuff we could unpack around cyber warfare there. Going back to it, do you think that going to have security for NATO, and this is going to be our standard. This is going to be our, our standard as derived by the, the security because we're going to need to do that at some point. The next big war is going to involve, and we're not that far off if you believe them outside the media or what's going on, but you've got this this massive technological piece where we're, we're gearing up so quickly. I've got customers that won't use kind of Russian companies anymore, any company associated with Russian companies. I've got customers saying we need to look through our third parties to find out who's using companies through their supply chain who are in that space as well, because we don't want anything to do with it. Yeah, I mean, but it's... it's um... <laughs> I think in reality, we've lived through a very quiet, peaceful phase before, and we're going back to a 
to essentially the norm, right? And we've been very trusting, but I to the question, are we going to have different technological, uh, I guess, subcultures? Yeah. I don't even think on, an, on a, just on a regional or national. In some cases, it will be regional. If you think of, like you mentioned, the BRICS, there will be national ones where they diverge. But even the West is a very good example right now. We couldn't have a beneficial AI because we can't agree which biases that AI should hold. So we might actually end up with different representative AIs, even within the same country, if you have a diverse population, because everybody wants their own biases reflected in the model that they're using or the models, or they believe it is biased. And that's an irony. In China, it's easy. China says, this is the bias the model will have. We haven't hashed that out yet. And people come along and say things like, well, we need to objectively work out what's best for the most amount of people, not realizing there's no objective way to do that. It's already a subjective weighting built into how you define that, right? And so in reality, we have to agree on which biases we want to have represented there. But it will be a jarring experience the moment you go into a different zone, into a different region. And at the same time, though, people aren't going to cut themselves off. Think of a lot of the benefits, but there's going to be a shared space and there's going to be more and more segmented, maybe like island systems, maybe more secure subsystems around which are going to be, and there's going to be a lot more gates, which we're not used to. Think of the Chinese firewall, right? We're going to have a lot more around that, I believe. But as to whether this, you also mentioned the fact that our company is going to have to pay more is it going to become unaffordable for businesses to secure themselves, the market must provide. So some companies have just shrugged their responsibilities. They weren't viable to begin with. For the others, there's going to be a mix of different solutions from we're going to be building technology differently, whether security or even normal tech. You're going to be relying more on service providers because we're not going to solve the skill shortage without automation and without services. You need a forensic expert per X companies, unless they're large companies, as an example. So we're going to have to start concentrating these resources and sharing them better. But I think there's a market solution for a lot of that cost. And indeed, some people can make money out of this. It's an opportunity, right? That's a way to look at it. I see this as a market opportunity because I work for a company where we're trying to save people money. <laughs> All right. So it's okay. <laughs> I just get the feeling that, you know, and again, before we sort of move on to kind of the more economics and some of the layoffs and some of the stuff that we're seeing, and it is kind of associated, you know, I just feel that we're weaponizing security in a way that I feel a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, I'm used to protecting, securing, providing, you know, cost effective measures of securing an environment. But when you're looking at the weight of, of the potential attacks coming from a whole group of other aggressors, malicious actors, whatever, whether they're state-sponsored or not. I mean, look, let's, look at, let's look at cyber insurance just alone. I mean, I was reading yesterday that Lloyds of London are now changing some of the terms that they're using for their, their you know, I, I'm guessing it's from Merck and losing to the tune of $1.4 billion. But they're now saying, you know, state-sponsored uh, hackers or state-sponsored malicious actors. And it's like, if you unpack it, how are you going to tell? It's just a blanket all of not paying, which means why would anybody 
buy insurance if they know that the, that the clauses are just going to be used against them. I think you're right, but, but I've, I've always argued that cyber insurance, it's actually uninsurable if you don't have minimum standards because you need to be able to hedge for risk. It, it's like insuring people in the, for flooding in the flood zone. You're going to go bust as an insurance, right? But the first thought you said when you mentioned that was to me, maybe this will stop companies whenever they get breached by a script kitty saying it was a sophisticated nation state attack. <laughs> I think it will, because then they won't get their insurance payout. <laughs> I mean, economically, do you think, it, you know, it, our movement in security and the, the, the advancement of security technology is going to be affected by this economic downturn? Or do you think a lot of the recovery is going to be viewed as, as being from that security sector? Because let's face it, there's a lot of, public companies or public organizations at the moment and critical infrastructure that are losing their mind over how they're going to secure themselves and are willing to pay massive amounts of money to go through that. Because obviously with what's going on and we've already discussed, it's, it's a real potential there. But do you think that's where we're going to see some, some, some movement? There are several different things going on from an economic point of view. Obviously, interest rates have gone up and that just means that credit is tighter. It's harder to get loans. It's harder to raise capital. On the other hand, it also means people are less likely to, in, to invest in less risky things because you can get a good interest rate return. At some point, interest rates outperform low-risk investment, right? And so there's good, that's also part of the shift. So obviously, this is going to impact all calculations. You take away the COVID thing as well, and the tech projections were just completely, woefully, I don't know, you know, overly optimistic, not for this, not for this world. At the same time, you look at how many people they've let go. And when you think of the skill shortage in tech, you can't help but feel there's a relationship there that if these people aren't really doing anything productive, they've just been taken off the market and they've, they've been robbed from other people. So it's going to help a little bit because it's putting basically a bunch of tech people back into circulation. The overall downturn is yet to come. We're still trying to see what's going to happen there, right? But I think most people can work out that the next few years are going to be more challenging macro environment than the years before, partially because we also have to pay back all of the money that was taken out during COVID. That was like a wartime effort of spending. It's going to take time to pay back. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying this is what's happening, right? That's going to have an impact on spending. I think users are going to be more, they're going to plan more. They're not going to do knee-jerk purchases, which has been the case in the past two years. Shit, we need VPN, let's go and buy. We have a month to pick it out. I think that's led to a lot of bad decisions. It's allowed some companies to thrive who've been aggressive in marketing, but not necessarily in R&D. And so there's going to be a shifting of budgets. That's And people are going to try to get more for their budgets as well, because a lot of them don't have the full set paid for. Uh, so it's going to change buying behaviors, and it's going to create different market dynamic from a cybersecurity point of view. Will it make cybersecurity worse? Yes, for some companies it will, because they're going to cut the budget aggressively. We're already seeing that. People think they're going to be able to automate their way out of it using chat GPT, and I hate to break it. You need an expert user to use it. It won't automate anything away, unless you're unless you have a very high risk appetite for stuff going broke, you know, uh, maybe some people do, but, but I mean, what I mean is that it's going to help alleviate the skill shortage is going to make people more efficient, but it's not going to save your security budget. In fact, the first products are going to want money for that, not for free. We're seeing an increasing trend in, you know, we can't afford that. We can't afford that price. It's got to come down. Obviously you go back to the vendors and the vendors are like, well, we've had to increase our prices because of, the problems with the economics at the moment. And it's like, oh, right, okay, so 
where do we go then? Are we reaching yeah, an but, impasse? But, but, yeah, but, but, let, but let's look at it from the point of view of like, what was the, if you, if you just look at pen testing and the whole assessment kind of area, you know, what, what falls under tax surface management now, but generally includes vulnerability assessment, it includes patch management, compliance scanning, it might include external attack surface assessment and so on. If you think of that old model for a consultant, it was unaffordable. I, I did pen tests. A, comp- a customer would say, we want the whole company tested. And by the time we calculated through, we were basically down to a two-week engagement where we spent a week writing a report and three or four days just trying to scan because the network was so bad that you couldn't basically assess everything. And it was a limited scope. Now, if you think of what we can do now for the same customer in those two weeks, if we're using automation, if we're using threat intelligence, if we're using AI, if we have a hybrid human service component, we're going to be able to do the entire external attack surface. We're going to be able to look at a showdown database. We can drop an agent internally, which starts doing it basically breach and attack surface assessments, or tries to exploit lateral transfer and privilege escalation. That two weeks now should provide a lot more protection and a lot more value for money based on what we can do with that time and this combining services, automation, and the human element. That human is still important because ultimately all of these things, they're just force multipliers, but you need a force to multiply. But now a two-week engagement is enough to assess a company. I still think you need to do it more than once a year, but if that's your limited budget, you need to get the most for that budget that you can. So I, I think it's a mixed bag, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, you know, of course I agree with you. I mean, we've just come up with Razor's Edge. You know, that's our continuous pen testing thing. And the, the we've had a ton of people asking to see it and having demos. And we've even had a couple of competitors ask if they can white label it kind of thing. You know, there's obviously a massive market for that. And looking at some of the legislations that's come out and indeed coming out, it's no longer appropriate for you to have that snapshot in time. You can have that snapshot in time as a big, big sort of like, you know, boom effect just to really dive deep into it. But we are going towards a more, we've got to have some kind of assurance on a regular basis. And as you quite rightly pointed out, some of it is automated, but some of it is that human element. The, the automation is just there to basically speed up the ability for that human element to go and check and check adequately and, and quickly and within a reasonable time space and then report back so something can be done because that's always been the problem with pen tests they're great they're fantastic and as you say you do them over a week two weeks three weeks four weeks depending upon how big the infrastructure is and how many web apps and how many mobile apps they've got and so on and so forth but it, that's all it is a snapshot in time so by the time you get the report by the time you've read the report by the time you've fixed all the problems or you've had a stab at fixing the problems and you go for your retest it could be six months down the line could be eight months down the line. It could be next year, you know, and then you do the test again and boom, all of a sudden you get the same results or some of the results haven't been fixed. And you're like, well, we've, I thought we fixed these. In the meantime, you've got the malicious actors who are spending vast quantities of the money that they've illicitly got from companies working hard in their, in their own communities to build new attacks. And you're still looking at the attacks from, you know, that were available from a year ago. We can't operate on that model anymore. Active security is, is uh, as, as, oh, I'm going to coin that term now in the marketing. Active security is really where I think where we're, we're, the distinct need is going, which is going to require things like AI, you know, as we've discussed plenty of times before. You know, having, having the ability to monitor large data sets. I mean, Christ, you've had to sit there and do it. I've had to do it where we sat there with 
six months worth of logs and you're like right i'm trying to find this tiny little pin in the middle of a massive pile of longer pins and straw it's going to take me weeks you know a forensic analysis of a of, of a simple laptop if it's been used for illicit purposes it's not a five minute job it's not like the forensics guys get it and go oh yeah that's what happened can take days it can take weeks depending upon what's on that stuff i just think you know active security is really where it's going and it's like that's that's where the technology i think is is heading towards so um uh gartner and, and i don't know if they came up with it i have a you know lawrence pingree there he's talking about moving target defense I like that. Moving target defense. I like because, that. because that's the whole point. I always say to people, like, the, the problem with enterprise security is that it's been approached where you're playing solitaire. I have X patches. I, have, I can do so many in a week, so I will patch for the next three months. But there's an attacker. You have an adversary. They dictate the rules of engagement. That's what you're protecting against. You're not protecting against a spreadsheet. That's the abstraction, and you're mistaking the, the map for the territory. But in reality, there's actually somebody there, somebody who's out to get you. And if you're not focused on them, you're doing it wrong. And that means our, our target keeps moving. Planning a security project over two years, it's ludicrous. You've missed the moving target. By the time you're finished, what you've done is outdated. You need to already aim for what's going to be there in two years' time, not now. Yeah, so so moving target defense, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like university courses, isn't it? You know, by the time you've studied it, by the time you've got to that rarefied thing where you've done your dissertation and you know, you've 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 been accepted as an as a, as the next infosec person and you go out on the market, you realize that everything you've you've learned is like 5 years out of date, completely unusable. So you have to go back to the basics of what you've learned. No, it's, it is crazy out there, and I think it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I, the, the draw, because let's talk about simple consultancy, and that's part of the economic factor of the infosec space. We don't have enough people. I'm finding it difficult to find people. I'm actually training up as many of the next generation of infosec people as I can within my own organization because there just isn't the quality of staff out there. There's a lot of people who've come into it from other areas. Like, you know, I'm seeing people coming in from legal, coming in from finance, you know, obviously IT, which is traditional. But we've got all kinds of people coming into this. We've lost that mentor group because of, of the lockdowns. A lot of them just went, I, you know what, I've had enough been shouted at and told I'm worthless. So I'm just going to sit in the garden and live off my retirement. So they're not mentoring in this new generation of people. And we've got this massive hole that's hit us in the face where, and even for quite a while, there was no university stuff going on because nobody knew what to do with the university people during lockdowns. So nobody got trained really properly during that time period. And I, I don't know what else to do. You know, I'm, I've, my masterclasses have gotten so many views nowadays and I've gotten so many comments that, even if these all these companies do scale up and start doing active security and start bringing their security into the modern kind of requirements for now, there's not people here. There's no, not enough people here who can do it. And consultancies, I'm overburdened with with people coming to us saying, "Can you please help us?" And it's like, when you know, oh, we need it immediately. Well, I can't get the staff to be able to upskill enough to be able to meet the demand necessarily. We're doing the best we can, but I think in another 12 months' time, we're going to be in a bit of a sticky wicket if things keep going. Because some of the big players in this market in my space are starting to fail. 
and they're starting to lay off their staff because they've obviously overextended themselves. Yes, that, that's the definition of a zombie company. You only thrive when there's low interest because actually your business doesn't have margins, right? Or that's all you've taken out so much debt to expand. But now the interest rate's gone up, the debt payment means you, you can't actually innovate anymore. You can't expand. And that's a common thing. I think we're seeing that across the space. Um, there are a lot of startups over the next two years that are just going to quietly disappear. They will get rid of marketing and R&D and they will be looking for a buyer. That's the other counterpoint to this, to this downturn to the funding. VC funding has gone down roughly 39, 40%. So that means there's a, and there's a lot more companies. A lot of people who've been laid off have had the idea to do their own startup. So there's a lot more people competing for that lesser VC funding. I personally think it's a good thing. I believe that will actually identify the people who are better at building businesses and viable long-term products. But that's just my personal personal preference. The type of leadership profile is going to change over the next few years of what's considered successful. Um, but at the same time, of course, um, in the meantime, it's turbulence, volatility for the user. They're going to need a partner to help them navigate that because you don't know which of these vendors is going to get required or is going to basically just run out of money. They're not going to tell you. And right now, you can't identify that necessarily, um, how much runway somebody has. So I think that's an important as aspect to it from an economic point of view. But um, all the more reason to focus on service providers who are going to manage these uncertainties for you. And sadly, also a reason for people to go to the big guys like Microsoft or AWS because, well, all things aside, what you have is predictability, right? Well, they're the only ones. It's going to be like cloud. Remember cloud? Anybody with a with a you know sort of IT knowledge created a cloud company, and they got bought, and they got bought, and they got bought. Before you knew it, all we had was like AWS, Azure, a few smaller ones who are who are kind of the next stage down, and then a large three letter company that I don't don't really rate for anything these days. I'm not going to name them because I'll just get in trouble. We're facing this kind of really horrible situation where I think a lot of these startups are going to get bought. I think a lot of this, it's going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. And we're going to end up with the big boys just saying, well, we can run security for you. It's like, no, if you're an operating system company, be an operating system company. Let security companies do security because you're just looking at it a way to make money, not securing an environment. And that's what I've got a problem with. It's like Microsoft. They're always toting Microsoft Defender. I'm sure it's a really nice product. I would never just rely on that for my endpoints or for my servers. I really wouldn't. I would go out to the market and get something a little bit better, I'll be honest. But you have the skills. But but in reality, it, it's convenience that people are paying for. And convenience usually comes ultimately at the cost of security, right? That's We, we forget. There's a reason why you don't get, put all your eggs into one basket. Yeah, we've been there before. I, all I'll say on that one, just very quickly interjecting, to, to sorry to cut across, is I, I don't think that's, that's going to be the case going forward. I think what's happening is, yes, it was convenience up till now. But convenience doesn't breed good security. Good security breeds good security. And I think a lot of these, it's, it's like back in the day, you remember Semantic and McAfee. It wasn't McAfee, it was uh, Security Associates, I think it was. Everybody was buying everybody else. And, you know, everything became Semantic. There was a good firewall that came out, Semantic would buy it. They would buy it, they would ruin it. And, and it became rubbish. 
you know. Great graveyard of security solutions, right? Absolutely. McAfee as well. Yeah. Sidewinder G2 firewalls back in the day were some of the most solid firewall infrastructures you could ever get. And I had a couple of them at a company I worked for, and nobody could touch them. I had pen testers try it. Nobody could figure out what they were doing with it. They was like, boom. And then they got acquired and, and then just disappeared and died. And it's like, that was such good technology that could have gone so far. Do you think that's going to happen going forward? I mean, it, you know, VC money's running out, but do you think it's just the big boys going to be coming in and saying, right, we'll buy that, we'll buy that, it looks good, yeah, whatever, we'll buy that? So most of the large vendors have an investment arm now. And if you're a vendor and somebody gives you $250 million, you're not doing that to invest in marketing and sales. You're doing it for merger and acquisitions. At that point, you're basically a fund. And you're being used as a vehicle. Some of the larger guys, they, they're going to be acquiring when VCs don't necessarily have the risk appetite because their risk appetite is going to go down because in reality, the, the, their money givers risk appetite has just gone down. And it's ironic because VC is all about risk appetite, but we've just been burnt really badly in several different ways, right? So yeah, there's going to be a large a large push on that. At the same time, though, it is part of the cycle. The, the sad thing from a security point of view is you're right. There's this group of people like mad men and women, and all they're plotting is if we buy that, how much more TAM do we get? How can we do cross-sell, upsell? And the end result is something that's basically grown like cancer. The technical synergies are rarely realized. And that's what happened back in the day with Symantec or McAfee or HP, all of them. They said they're going to give you a unified platform. They didn't. They gave you a unified bill. But you could have bought the tech from anybody else. It, it didn't work any better just because you. they never got the, comp, the business units and the teams to work together. McAfee got pretty close with DXL. You have the Oasis you know, standard group from IBM. They're still trying this. But at the end of the day, you need to decouple a lot of this stuff. You need to make it easier for people to be able to mix and match what they need because we're chasing a moving target. Investing in any vendor for five years right now might mean you can't adapt quick enough. And so we have a lot of stuff to do just on the back end, standards, how you transfer data, how you connect APIs and everything to enable that. I hope that's what's going to happen over the next few years. And that, that's what I'm working on, right? That's one of the topics which I've been pushing for quite a few years, being able to have better standards so that you can just swap out the detection. So you can just basically build together what you need to without being tied into any one vendor. But it's a constant fight. Somebody's always wanting some business person who realizes the potential always wants to get their claws into it, right? We'll see. I think it's going to be, it's, I, I certainly think the next three or four years is going to be really interesting in the security space, probably even longer. It'll be even, even more telling if we do have a proper conflict, because I think that's really going to be where, where we're going to see the, the potentials of what we haven't secured come to a realization, you know, boom. I didn't realize we could do all of this. <laughs> you know? it, 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 it's a great time, right? I mean, we have we have things like OTSF, right? right, right? So that's basically that, that, that's like a common a common schema for security data. We have projects like Open IOC. We have Sticks Taxi. Everything is moving along. We have that whole quantifying and measuring security movement that's going on. We have lots of machine learning um, um, things happening. And uh, one quote I read last week was my favorite. AI isn't going to take your job. Someone else using AI will. 
And that is, that is the exciting opportunity here, that if you just, and I find it remarkable that so many security people aren't technologists. They're Luddites when it comes down to it. Embrace it. This is the future. Start learning how to build useful stuff out of it. Don't get caught up in the hype. Don't get caught up by the idiots on LinkedIn showing you yet another way of basically trying to jailbreak it. Start using it. Build cool stuff with it. And that's where this revolution is going to occur. Yeah, the revolution isn't AI. It's you plus AI. That's where good stuff's going to happen, you know? So, so exciting times. It's awesome, yeah. Even at the same time as we're, yeah, as, as we're being more valued, as businesses and governments are starting to realize, actually, this is important. So it's a great time to be in this business, yeah. No, I think I, I personally think AI is the next technological revolution that we're, we're charging towards. And, you know, I don't think we're, we're close to it going nuts and murderous, murdering us all with robots or sending people back through time to murder people's parents, although that was a bloody good film. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm with, I'm with you on, on this one, and you know, I like Ray Kurzweil as well, and you know, Singularity is near, really good book for any of you out there kind of watch, you know, watching this. There's some really good stuff in there. But we've reached the top end. In fact, we're, we're, we're almost reaching over the time period that we would normally spend. So I think there's some definitely a few things to unpack here. It's really interesting to get your viewpoint, Oliver, and 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 I think this is going to fuel several other conversations on this quarterly piece. I think maybe next time we hit the AI thing. I think it's such a big part of the change that's happening. And I'd like to you know try and break down some of the vendor hype as well. We've talked about that before where everything's now powered by AI and it's like, well, it's not really AI, is it? You know, let's, let's look at the definition here, people. And, and it's a bit sad when, when it's basically ubiquitous, right? Chat GPT style technology is going to be everywhere in 12 months. And it's like saying, here's an appliance with electricity. It's not really a differentiator anymore, is it? Don't know if electric costs keep going up. We might not have devices with electricity, so it might all go completely the other way. Well, I have an article planned in a couple of months on how our future for cyber operations would look if we have to go into a low-power mode. What if we have to start conserving energy? Ooh. So, you know, even that is a potential future, yeah. So those of you out there, you know, keep an eye on our, you know, Oliver and some of those publications he's producing. Oliver, where do you, you, you publicise, just to let people know? Um, so so, so I'm, I'm started, so I used to write for Security Week, like for many years, and I'm just taking up my column back there. Fantastic. So that's where you can find him. Please go and have a look. He, he, Oliver's got all kinds of really interesting stuff that he produces and, and whatnot. And part of the reason why we have him on the, on the podcast, we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.